0: I'm Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media, and welcome to World Changing Women. Each week, we interview some of the most badass female founders in the world to get their insights on how they've built game-changing companies that actually have a positive impact on the world. Our hope here is to inspire and help people of all backgrounds who feel like starting a business or chasing their dream is out of their reach to reconsider. We'll hear the good, the bad, and sometimes even the ugly of what it takes to start and build something incredible. And we hope that every episode will leave you inspired, hopeful, and with practical tips that will help you along your journey. Welcome to World Changing Women.
1: If you build it, something will come. And as long as you don't feel, in many ways, almost compulsively obsessive about what it has to be, and you're open to the road and the process, then you know you have confidence because it will get you somewhere.
0: Did you know that one in every four girls fails to earn her high school diploma in four years, and that those numbers are even worse for girls of color? When girls don't complete high school, they experience higher rates of unemployment, earn significantly lower wages throughout their lifetime, and are more likely to need to rely on public support programs to provide for their families. Research has also confirmed that single-sex schools benefit students that are most educationally at risk, including girls and minority students. After learning about this, Liz Wolfson had a vision for an all-girls school that would foster academic excellence and personal development for young women. Fast forward many years, and she's now the co-founder of Gals and Boys, which are tuition-free charter schools and are the only public single-gender college preparatory schools in Colorado, and they're now expanding into other states. We sat down with Wolfson to talk education, how she built a school with no history of doing so, and how she's overcome many challenges along the way. And as a small disclaimer for this episode, all Denver public schools were on lockdown on the day that we recorded this episode because of a shooter threat. So when Liz talks about that during the episode, that's what she's referring to. Very first question is kind of where I start with everyone, which is kind of around the origin story, but I actually want to hear about the place you were in your life before you had the idea for Gals, Inc.,
1: Uh, Thank you, Megan. It's a great question. Um, You know, I was in a place of transition. The question was, where was I going to get to or go to? um, Because I was headed somewhere. And so I think there are often points in many women's lives where we really need to be self-reflective and ask, what are we trying to accomplish in the world? I had just been living overseas for 10 years. I came back and truly couldn't find something that was matching my life context uh, with my purpose context. And I really happened upon a couple of books that were given to me by someone. And I had one of those moments where my heart jumped out of my body, and I said, I'm going to go build schools. It was pretty much that simple, but it was definitely amidst a context of transition in my life where I wasn't settled, my system wasn't settled, my brain wasn't settled, my heart wasn't settled, and I knew I had to get to some place that was gonna offer me a real opportunity for expression of what I wanted to do and be and contribute in my life.
0: I I mean, I, I would be remiss not to ask, do you remember what these books were?
1: I do, I do. Um, The first book um, was by Rachel Simmons, a friend and an amazing human. Um, And it was uh, called Odd Girl Out. And the second book was How Girls Thrive um, by Joanne Deek, an amazing brain scientist. Um, And then right afterwards, I read another book Um, by Diana Meehan, who actually is from Denver, uh, but lived in Los Angeles and wrote a book called How Girls Learn. I believe that's the title of it, where she talked about her personal journey of starting a private girls' school um, that had been open, I think, for at the time for maybe 10 years, but was really part of the renaissance of girls' education in America. And she went through her journey of starting uh, a school in Brentwood, California.
0: Mm, Thank you. Um, So you said you then had this kind of moment where you said, I'm going to go build schools. Talk to us about that and also kind of what was different about these schools that you wanted to build.
1: Sure. I think it's important to talk about um, the fact that I have no formal background in education, um, and I didn't particularly like school. Um, uh, and what I mean by that and, and words have come to me now in self-reflection that it wasn't that I didn't like school. It was that I never felt connected. I never felt connected to the content I was learning and I never felt connected to the teachers in the schools. There was one human, the athletic director. Um, how apropos that after building something called Gals Inc, the girls athletic leadership schools, um, who absolutely saw me and I felt known by him, but otherwise even in a small town, uh, setting, um, I just never, uh, developed any relationships that impacted my life. I think in ways that we strive to achieve now, back then the vision was pretty, uh, nebulous. It was really about taking the context that I knew as most, you know, I wish I could say it was radical, but most most basic around how girls feel good about themselves. Um, and for me, that was organized sports, which translates now into the term movement and health through movement. Um, and putting that into a school setting based on the brain science that I was teaching myself about that really simply states, to learn, you've got to move. To optimize academic excellence, you've got to keep kids moving throughout the day. Um, Those were the basic principles. How that developed over time really is based more on a three-prong approach. So one is uh, movement boosts cognitive achievement. The second is what we call relational learning boosts cognitive achievement. And for us, relational learning is is, is the container for social emotional development and identity development in particular. And then the third is this idea that diversity and inclusion boosts cognitive achievement. And diversity here really defined as all these different folks that we know our world is made up of and that we've got to live in a world where perspectives around us are valued and part of a conversation on a daily basis. And inclusion really is about creating school buildings that honor all different learning styles and learning levels of our children, without making judgments about who is capable or able of what simply based on um, learning styles and learning levels. So that's that's the good wording now, but back then it was really just about, I got to get back to the world of movement because I know that's where the women that I've met in my life who feel good in their skins and good in their hearts and spirits, they spend their time really uh, coveting their body as an athletic being. Um, And I wanted schools to be able to teach all girls, regardless of background, that feeling um, as the main form of of efficacy to do whatever you want in the world.
0: And just to help orient us, what year was this that you kind of had this idea?
1: Oh, um, being over 50, it's hard for me to even answer a question like that anymore. Um, It was in 2004 or five or six. It was in 2006, I believe, that I really started to play with the idea. And then by two thousand seven, um, really began to execute in some fashion on, on this idea.
0: And what kind of gave you the confidence to move from, I have an idea to I'm actually going to do this crazy idea that's in my head?
1: Wow. Um, I feel the confidence now it's hard for me to relate to the confidence then. Um, but what I would say is for me, it was part survival. It was this really intrinsic, intuitive feeling about myself that I must do something in order to feel purposeful in my life. And so part of that confidence came from this intuitive thing that we all possess, that if you get quiet, you hear it and it's clear. And I think when that is felt in your body, you automatically have a confidence So I believe that, and I live with that kind of way of being in the world all the time. So I think that confidence was there. Um, Otherwise, I think it was a, if you build it, they will come uh, confidence. I had spent time before then building things or being a part of the building process for other people's purpose. And so I was able to understand my experience as expertise and wisdom in a way that allowed me to know, if you build it, something will come. And as long as you don't feel, in many ways, almost compulsively obsessive about what it has to be, and you're open to the road and the process, then you know you have confidence because it will get you somewhere. And so I think I really relied on my experience in the world of building things before and my understanding that it's not always a straight shot. Um, I think that was something that I built over time um, and utilized at this point when I had manifested the understanding of what I was trying to do.
0: Mm-hmm. So then speaking of that execution and actually building it what were actually tangibly some of the first steps that you took when you decided to actually make make this happen
1: Well, I'm going to laugh and tell you, I am absolutely a Pisces, so I swim. And so much of my style, no matter what level or what I'm doing, I swim a lot because I feel my strength comes from allowing myself to swim. But I also have a very strong Virgo side, so um, I am absolutely a tasker and a doer um, in a way that that benefited me. I recognized from the beginning that my own perspective was never going to be enough. So the first things that I did included networking with people like Rachel Simmons, who wrote the book, uh, Birch Ford, who's a a real big deal in in the area of of building girls' schools. Um, and I just started to talk to people. I started to make connections. That is part of the wisdom that I've gained over the years before now, is that I've always been strong in understanding how to connect the dots, and even more importantly, how to create the dots. So, I just went out there and started to talk to a ton of people based on reading and writing and uh, internet surfing that I was doing. Um, and so, utilized my Uh, networks from other arenas, and called people and traveled to meet them and talk to them. Um, And from there, what I did was also spend time bringing in young people, because at the time that I did this, I I was 40, um, to really focus on, if we're talking about schools and middle school, high school age group, I'm kind of past that and really needed to think about having partners in this process who were much closer um, in age to to the students we would be serving. And so I spent time researching how to get interns. I went to Harvard School of Education. I went to Boston College School of Social Work. Um, And where I ended up finding my amazing partner in all of this um, was at my alma mater, Brown University, and I was living in Providence. And I had met a woman, um, Carrie Heffernan, who has a PhD in feminist pedagogy. And back then, I didn't even really understand what that meant. Um, But she just looked me in the eye and and was and is so intense and said, I have the perfect person for you. Um, She's a junior in college. And my original answer was I don't take undergrads as interns because they take too much work to mentor. And she said, please meet this person. And uh, we met for coffee, and she introduced me to the uh, indomitable Nina Safain, um, who is absolutely my soul sister and 20 years my junior. Um, and we just hit it off really well. And she became really the engine. Um, for this venture with me um, while I worked on the vision and the mission and the assumptions and the partnerships and the business model, um, we became partners in this intergenerational duo. Um, But that first move of understanding that no matter who you are, you can't do it by yourself and that you need to build a posse around you um, to work absolutely with you, Um, I think, you know, who knows what would have happened if I had not used that as my initial um, route to success. Um, but I, I think that was the key for me.
0: And so we've heard about kind of the three pillars that you talked about that, the, that Gals Inc. is based on. And, but I'm curious, in those initial days, what was that vision that you and your co-founder shared? What was the purpose of this entity that you were trying to create?
1: Well, I'm not sure either of us knew I think that we knew we needed to understand how movement and brain science could be integrated into the structure of a school. Um, And so we spent a lot of time. um, The first summer that Nina worked with me, um, she had received a fellowship um, from the the Center for Public Service uh, at Brown, where I was able to just send her to Florida and send her to California to meet with organizations like CrossFit Kids to sit in meditation and kind of exploratory movement groups with an amazing woman named Janice Rouse who who does what's called body dialogue. Um, We brought together educators from different realms to just talk through how do we think about language? How do we think about structure? How do we think about a path in an educational journey that might look different? Um, So we were doing a lot of searching. I think I also needed to really understand education as an industry. Um, Since I had never worked in a school until the day we opened up our first school, um, there was just a huge level of lack of understanding what we were getting into. And to be honest, we made a philosophical decision at the beginning to open a private school, um, because I believed that if we could prove something in a private setting for those with privilege, then everybody else would jump at it, as opposed to falling prey to, I think, more typical education school leaders 10 years ago, where it was this kind of school model works for those kids. And Uh, I really came in and Nina really pushed this uh, for me, um, the issue that we need to really be involved in issues of those at risk and those um, less fortunate and those um, fighting for the justice of access and opportunity to schooling. We needed to talk about them in the same breath that we're talking about those with privilege and absolute choice and opportunity. So we really spent our time searching together um, and figuring out what the route was going to be to opening our first school. And I think that's where my, uh, leadership or my business sense and experience came into play of when is the time as an entrepreneur to stop thinking, researching and planning and to start to build the actual product. Um, and I made that decision about 15, 16, maybe 18 months in that it was time to just not even dip our toe in the water, but just jump full force into the ocean and see what happens.
0: Mm. So let's talk about that moment when you jumped into the ocean full force. Uh, what was it like, kind of opening that first school? And where what were were there anything that you did that you wish you had done differently?
1: Well, there's a list of at least fifteen to thirty five <laughs> things that I think both Nina and I would tell you had we known. Um, we would have done it differently. But I would also say that I think most entrepreneurs would agree with me that it is that first jumping into the ocean with your eyes wide open but truly not knowing how it's going to be. Um, That process is, it's, it's, it's irreplaceable. Mm-hmm. Um, it is what makes me feel that I have expertise now because I've been through it. Um, I would say the two or three things that I would highlight, and maybe only one, um, that we would have done differently, um, I think we would have thought through our long-term strategy more um, and created multiple pathways that we could have come back to over time and just continued to uh, let those different strategies unfold over time. I feel that um, what I learned was that schools are such unbelievably responsive institutions that I didn't have the amount of time to really plan or think in the way that I wish we could have and that sustained itself as a a practice over time, um, there really wasn't that ability to both open the flagship school and continue to really hold a strong strategic thinking practice every day. Um, I think I got there um, after four years of being the school head of the middle school while Nina was earning her stripes by becoming a teacher and then running other pieces of our program, running special education, um, because the plan for her was always to be the on the ground educator. That was her initial goal. Uh, Mine was always to get to the place that there was a platform of discussion around the outcomes and what we had learned in this process as part of a a participation in public discourse around gender equity. Um, But I think maybe what I would have done differently is really understood the framework in which new schools were being started politically in order to allow myself to be more of a player from the get-go versus a doer for four years and then realizing in the realm of politics and education, we were a little bit, if not a lot of bit, behind in terms of our ability um, to raise funds and therefore free up my business brain Um, in order to ensure a future that was much more sustainable than what we're actually experiencing now.
0: So you have to ask, I mean, your first school, how did you convince people to send their children to a brand new school? And (laughs) and what what did that kind of first class look like? How large is it? Um, Well, we opened
1: up our first middle school with sixth and seventh graders, and I believe we opened up with 114 to start um, the goal was always to be somewhere around 90, um, in each grade. So we were far below, uh, what we needed to be. Um, I think at the end of the day, we were just really great salespeople. Um, and again, the multi-generational approach worked because Nina was just brilliant, um, with children, um, and students and prospective students in a way that I just was never cool enough to be, um, <laughs> And I believe that I was able to capture um, adults' understanding that not only were we a startup, but we were a startup that really was led by a dynamic adult that they could call upon and and hold to expectations. But we did everything from carry bouncy balls um, into libraries um, with pamphlets made with pictures of my nieces in them. <laughs> um, we went to like soccer tournaments and walked the sidelines and handed out flyers. Uh, We went to um, people's homes. Um, We just went everywhere. And really just, it was about crossing your fingers and saying, I think I felt a connection there. And then really doing the work that it takes with touch points um, and continued opportunities to ensure parents that not only should they put our kids in our school, but why they should put their kids in our school. And so I think what made us tremendous was a combination of an educational vision with a a world vision of what we really believed we were offering these young girls and their families. Um, But we were as about grassroots as you could have ever imagined. we made up t-shirts, you know, on some online site that we would wear, you know, that had our logo in it. And I remember to this day, I couldn't figure out how to make the logo bigger. So at (laughs) one point, the logo was literally like the size of a quarter on a baseball t-shirt. But, you know, I, one of the first, I call one of our first employees was this amazing woman uh, named Paula Shapiro here in Denver, um, who literally sat with me one day and I was like, We need pencils, we need water bottles, we need buttons, we need rip slap bracelets. Um, it was really about basic marketing and sales where you have to know who you're pitching to and you just keep going and you do all the legwork beforehand, um, and you do all the legwork afterwards. But, um, we were filling out forms by hand, um, counting them. It was it was an incredible learning experience that I think grounded us both in the care uh, for our students and families because of the work we did to get them there.
0: Mm. So, talk to me a little bit about the traction that you've gained since that time. Uh, how how big is Gals Inc. now?
1: Well, Gals Inc. now um, is. Uh, you know, just to clarify, Gal Zinc was the organization that I started before uh, we actually opened schools. So the plan was always to. Um, be in at least four regions around the country with the idea that our teachers could come together, our students could come together, and it really would be in some ways a movement of understanding what our product, what our students would look like after going through six or seven years of our education, Um, so that we could literally say one day, oh, Senator so-and-so went to GALS, or the CEO of that amazing technology startup um, was pushed through the STEM process because of her education at GALS. Um, and so the vision was always that GALS Inc. was where we started to end up on a platform. Um, as I said before, the participation in public discourse around gender equity and the how-to of leadership development for our uh, young women. Um, so we went from being that visionary idea to a founding flagship school, middle school in Denver. That middle school grew into a high school. Um, That middle school and high school for girls grew into a middle school for girls in Los Angeles. Um, Then we opened our first boys school, and that's another conversation. Um, And we are now in the development stages um, in Twin Falls, Idaho, Las Vegas, Nevada, Uh, Hollywood, Florida, potentially Massachusetts, um, very potentially New York City, um, but we are constantly uh, building our network of folks who want to open our schools. In addition, we have kind of uh, diversified our revenue model where we are um, all appendages uh, crossed, uh, receiving a uh, major a grant from the New Schools Venture Fund out of Oakland in order to do um, model provider work, which means instead of opening whole school models that are GALS schools, we would work with um, districts or other individual schools or schools networks to put in our signature programs around movement and relational learning. So we're growing fast. We're kind of like a franchise. All of our organizations are independent 501c3s, um, and we are connected through licensing agreements.
0: So I found this quote from you. Um, You say, we are an innovative, tuition-free public schools that are hell-bent on changing how girls experience growing up, (laughs) as well as changing civil discourse between girls and boys, growing into humane men and confident women because the status quo is not acceptable. Talk to me a little bit about what you mean by this. (laughs) I'm smiling at
1: myself as you read it. Um, Yeah, Um, I am hell bent on changing the status quo of how we speak to one another. Um, When I get going about what Gals is about for me and what outcomes we're really looking at, and if you add in there the issue that I'm a mother of two daughters, um, basic statistics around one out of three girls will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. Let's just start there. Um, I am hell bent, confident that if men and women, young men and women went through our school journey, they would learn to love themselves so much and to believe in themselves with a, a vim and vigor of how important self-love is, and how important loving your neighbor is, and how important inclusion of all of our communities are, um, that they would never assault anybody. In the same realm, um, I am hell-bent on making sure that my daughters understand the real world that they live in. They need to understand the other, whether that's a gender other, or an ethnicity under, or a uh, religion under or a sexual orientation or a gender identity other, that these folks deserve utmost respect and dignity just like them. And so I believe that we are stuck as a society and communities within discourse that is not friendly, that is not kind, that is not um, based on gratitude, that is not simply about respect. For ourselves or for the other, um, we could throw fear in there, that we must give our children a chance in schools because that is where they grow up, no matter how amazing you are as a parent. When your children go to schools, those administrators and those teachers are raising your children. Therefore, you must put them in a context that wants the same outcome for them that you do. A simple fact that co-ed schools have not produced an equitable environment for for genders. It just hasn't. So we must choose something different. Um, And so I believe that our schools are about, if you live for six to seven years in a context that is respectful, that is grateful, that is kind, that pushes the edge on our whole-bodied learning approach and our whole-bodied living and leading approach, meaning There is innate power in our physical systems that fuel our minds and that fuel our spirits. When our kids leave our schools, they won't accept anything less. They won't work for a company that does not have a diversified leadership in a public company on a board or a private company in its leadership team or in a school in its teaching staff. Um, Our children are going to say, that's not good enough for us, because we know that only in those environments does everyone feel they have the opportunity to fully become themselves. So that's a long roundabout answer, but I believe that's what our schools are truly about. And in there, we're going to teach them languages and math and science and social studies, um, because that's what we are uh, committed to do as well.
0: Hmm. So can you talk to me about one of the best moments you've had so far on this journey? Mm, Best moments.
1: Um, Well, I think absolutely one of the best moments was watching Nina come into her own um, as a leader and as a, as a, as a woman. Um, I feel that our relationship really embodied um, what the schools were about and um, how to relate to one another, how to have courageous conversations, um, and how to grow up in this education world together uh, despite the difference in age. Uh, We were experiencing it differently um, at uh, 20 years apart. But the idea that I could go through that with someone um, was always one of the greatest moments, just watching her come into herself um, and see her confidence and her tremendous relationships in our organization. I think there are so many moments with students that I have had that are just um, irreplaceable. Um, I remember a moment at the beginning of this journey that just, you know, broke my heart open to understanding that whatever I thought I was doing in building these schools, that I needed to be open to the fact that I was in for a really, really amazing personal ride. Um, We had a single father who brought his daughter to a uh, recruitment session in a library up in uh, uh, one of the far corners of the city. Uh, They uh, were both uh, Latino and they came in And he had his arm around her back. And she was shy and didn't say anything. And he looked at me. And he got super teary and choked up. And he said, hi, this is my daughter. We're here because I don't think she knows how beautiful she is. And I just want her to know how beautiful she is. And it wasn't about looks. It was about this father understanding that His responsibility in shepherding his child in life was to ensure that she understood the depth of her person and her right to manifest that however she saw fit. And I remember feeling this unbelievable light in my system um, around that moment. So that is one that sticks out uh, when you ask me that question. Mm,
0: Thank you. Um, And on the other side of things, what has been one of the most challenging moments thus far and how have you gotten through it?
1: (laughs) There are so many challenging moments. Um, I consider myself pretty adept at politics, whether they're um, professional politics or communal politics, um, but I was not ready for the intensity of politics in the education system. Um, I did not understand when we got into it, how politics and the political will of the district, uh, Denver Public Schools that we were applying to be a part of, I did not understand um, how it worked. Um, And so two moments stick out for me. Um, The first is um, when uh, we applied to get our charter, And we were turned down. And it was clear to me that we were turned down um, quite substantially based on political reasons. Because within, I want to say within a week at at the very most, we were asked to come back to the next round. Um, And I remember sitting in the boardroom, which was a non-air filled kind of I don't even know, it was like a basement or a side basement room uh, in the then Denver Public Schools buildings, and it was just not conducive to breathing even. Um, but uh, sitting there and my legal counsel on one side and a colleague from uh, the Colorado League of Charter Schools who had supported us in our application on the other side, and they read into public record that we were being turned down. Um, And I remember what was being read into public record was that we were being turned down because they did not believe that the leadership was suited towards uh, success. And they both kind of put their hands on my leg, and I just truly needed to go inside and breathe so deeply into my belly in order to get through that night. Um, And we knew it was coming, but it didn't change the fact that I had to sit and be a witness to our potential failure of even getting past to open. And for reasons that made absolutely no sense and did not have a true rationale in our opinion. Um, But we had to accept it and then uh, move on from there. Um, It was a truly gut-wrenching moment uh, that I will never forget. I would say the second moment, which I think is important to talk about, um, is how on the ground in these grassroots efforts, leaders like myself and Nina and our whole team and board, that was was amazing. Um, you're constantly having to deal with issues of uh, just gender bias, um, unconscious or completely intentional. They both exist. And there was a moment when we were, politicking hard and um, using all of our chips to guarantee an inclusion in a public bond for millions of dollars for our facility to grow, um, to fit the needs of our population, which at that point had reached over 500 students here in Denver. Um, And sitting in a meeting with with folks um, at the highest levels of the district and having someone say, um, you know, Liz, I feel like you're bullying my staff, or you're bullying us, I don't remember the exact words, and the, the blood rushing to my head. And before I even had a chance to formulate what comes next, my two uh, lay leaders or volunteer leaders next to me really um, taking charge of disallowing that type of uh, gender bullying um, that would have never been said to a male leader who was being successful, as I was, um, in ensuring um, attention paid to our our venture. And I remember saying out loud after my lay people had um, stood up on on our behalf, because it was never about me, it's always been about the venture, um, my saying, I will not apologize for the acumen in which we have gotten this far. Um, and I am not going to apologize for that or something to that nature. Um, but that experience among other situations like that, um, is one that will never leave me, um, either for my own growth and development or for my mentoring and sharing with other young women.
0: Mm, Thank you for sharing. Um, speaking of kind of growth and development, what are some of the best pieces of leadership advice that you've gotten so far?
1: I believe that advice that I was given, and I'm not sure where it came from, was simply that leadership must always model what it is you're looking to achieve. That leadership is not in a vacuum from the values and purpose of the venture. And so in this case, running schools um, in that situation, we just spoke about um, what would I tell a student who would be treated like that from someone in the world who was bullying them based on gender. Um, I would absolutely talk about going back to your values and principles and standing behind them. Because if you're going to succeed, you are going to succeed because of their power and strength. And if you're going to fail, you're going to fail because of their power and strength. But they're not up for discussion. And so at all of our gal schools, you'll consistently hear our leaders and our administration and teachers um, talking about modeling uh, what we believe in and that it needs to be consistent um, uh, because that is the definition of what we do. And leaders must represent that uh, to the best of their abilities all the time.
0: Mm, I love that. Um, And then for other folks out there who are looking to start something of their own, What advice do you have for them?
1: Well, (laughs) you've got to love startup. Um, (laughs) You've just got to love it. You've got to laugh. You've got to find joy. You have to find release. But if you want to do it, then figure out who you are in that puzzle first. Decide who you want to be. Are you the spiritual leader, the visionary? Are you the manager of the human process that it will take to create what you want or are you literally just uh, a worker someone who's going to take one piece of it and develop it so fully in all of its details down to the to the minutia of product development or curriculum development whatever it is you need to know who you are and who you are doesn't have to change but you have to be able to surround yourself with everybody else. Because no one can create something by themselves. Um, But you got to know who you are in there. And that takes, again, continuous self-reflection, continuous support in a therapeutic way of being able to let go what happens every day and start anew. But all of that really revolves around self-knowledge, the willingness to grow, the willingness to uh, be resilient, um, and the willingness to ask for help and again, these are all things that create a context in which anyone can be successful. Um, but you got to know who you are in that picture. Um, I believe that I'm incredibly lucky that I have had the opportunity to dream, to create, to fulfill something, to think about scale. Um, if someone wants to go through that process and then from a, a second layer, pass it on to those that you love that. The most. Um, I love the fact that my kids have been through this journey with me and they see me struggling and they see me celebrating. Um, I love that I can model that. And so I would say to anybody who wants to start something, do it. Um, Don't think twice. Be willing to put your whole self in, um, but know who you are and make sure that you are open to becoming something new in the process.
0: I love that. All right. And our final question here, what is giving you hope for the future?
1: (laughs) A difficult question to ask me on this day. Um, But I think what gives me hope for the future is that there are a lot of people from all backgrounds dissatisfied, feeling angst, wanting change. That gives me hope. I don't think I have the same level of hope that we're going to find our way in my lifetime to how to work together when we all are coming at issues of angst from different perspectives. Um, But at least I know there's angst, and at least I know people want change. Um, But kind of in an old Zen Buddhist way, you can't want change. You have to make change, or you have to be change. and so I think that there are a ton of young people who for, for not great reasons, uh, like my middle school daughter who's having to understand why a young woman would travel across the country who was born two years after a school shooting in, you know, in Littleton, Colorado, you know, barely one city from where we live, why a young woman would hate so much and be willing to fly across the country and you know, buy guns and then unfortunately be hunted down and, and self-inflicting to the point of death. But I think it gives me great hope that at 12 years old, my daughter is grappling with really essential human questions that I think I'm sad as a parent she is dealing with, but I do believe that it will propel her and others to continue to not accept it, to reflect and research on it and demand better for their lives moving forward. Those things give me hope amidst the angst.
0: A huge thanks this week goes out to Liz Wolfson and the whole team over at Gals Inc, as well as our incredible production team at StoryPop Media and the whole team at Conscious Company Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you tell a friend about the show. And be sure to subscribe to get the latest episode. Thanks so much for listening. A StoryPop Media production.